Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, episode 91. You're going to learn a lot just having conversations with these individuals who are doing the research, who are coaching these these athletes and have good ideas. You know, just don't just don't turn down those opportunities. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Today, our guest is Dr. Tim Sukumel, Assistant Professor at Carroll University in Wisconsin. Tim is the Wisconsin State Director for the NSCA. He is also the Chair of the NSCA Sports Science and Performance Technology Special Interest Group. So we have a lot of great things to talk about today. Tim, welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited to have you on. Um, First, really and foremost, I want to thank you. You are one of the uh, most loyal volunteers that we have within the NSCA community. Uh, you are involved, it seems to be, in everything. You recently spoke at our advanced periodization virtual clinic. You're speaking at the upcoming coaches conference. And, um, you know, I, I really do want to thank you for your service and dedication to the NSCA. We truly value it. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Oh, and I mean, any, I have to thank the NSCA as well for the opportunities because the NSCA has kind of set me up throughout my, you know, my career in terms of, you know, my very first presentation was in 2010 at a state clinic and, you know, the CSCS came, you know, not to right around that time and everything. And, you know, that kind of laid the foundation of where I wanted to go. And the NSCA has provided a lot of opportunities to meet a lot of really interesting people that I still connect with. And, you know, I enjoy going to the conferences all the time because you get to have those higher level conversations that you don't normally get to have on every day. So I, I enjoy it. And, you know, so thanks to the NSCA, honestly. Awesome. You know, I, I look forward to diving into the sports science SIG um, and some of your, your research topics. Um, but I wanted to get you started just, uh, open up, let us know um, what got you into this field um, and just tell us about your path in the field of strength and conditioning. Well, like most, uh, it would all started with playing sports when I was a kid. You know, anytime I could be outside, whether it was baseball, street hockey, I have an older brother. So naturally it was, uh, I'm a middle child too. So it's coming out to be uh, competitive all the time. Um, I used to draw pictures of, you know, me beating my brother in certain sports. So uh, the competitive nature was there, but um, I was never, you know, physically this, you know, the size, the, the big, um, the big athlete. So, you know, I'm, I'm five, six and a half and, you know, I weigh maybe 70 kilos. So, you know, I'm not going to turn any heads when I'm, when I'm walking down the street, but at that point, you know, I started to figure out that what do I need to do to be competitive with other individuals um, who may be more physically or genetically gifted than I am. So what that led me to was, you know, playing several sports in high school, but also going on to college and pursuing uh, a degree in kinesiology and strength and conditioning. And, you know, I really realized that I wanted to work with athletes. I wanted to work with you know, healthy athletes, getting them stronger, getting them faster. Um, but then that led me uh, an undergraduate internship with uh, Bill Evan doing some research led me to pursue a master's degree at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. And 
from there, I realized that I really enjoyed the research part. But at the same time, I had the opportunity to kind of work as a as a GA in the in the weight room. So from there, I, you know, I realized that I enjoyed doing both. I wanted to coach, but I also enjoyed the research. So I wanted to research what I wanted. And that led me to pursuing a doctoral or a PhD uh, with Mike Stone at East Tennessee State. And thankfully there, I also had the opportunity to do both because within the curriculum, you are working as a full-time strength coach, sports scientist with a division one team. But at the same time, you're also completing research, whether it's the with the monitoring data or additional data that you would collect there as part of your doctoral work. So it's a very, it was a very thorough experience for me. And, you know, three years, flew by. I honestly wish I may have had one more there, but um, that led me to teaching. And uh, I went uh, one year at East Stroudsburg University, and then I was fortunate enough to move back to Carroll, uh, which is about an hour away from my hometown. So nice to be back in Wisconsin, minus the long, long winters that we have. Wow, that's awesome. Um, you know, I want to ask you about academic programs uh, in the strength and conditioning field, uh, and, and a couple notable programs that you've experienced: Wisconsin Lacrosse, um, ETSU. You're at Carroll. Um, you know, speak to the value of academic uh, preparation for coaches, and also the role that research plays in strengthening the profession. Yeah. So the academics, uh, just purely from a, a program standpoint, it's really important for, for me, or I enjoyed it when I was going through my master's program is one of the first classes we took was kind of an exercise technique and coaching class. And really what that was is, okay, here's a power clean. Here's how you're going to teach it. And part of the curriculum was, I'm going to give you a random exercise and I want you to take me through how you're going to coach this exercise and then we get feedback. So I thought that was incredibly valuable. Uh, and then, you know, we were able to do that on the floor with the athletes as part of our, as part of our curriculum. Um, at the same time, we were exposed to, you know, exercise testing um, and assessment. So we would test the teams periodically, whether it was a, you know, a 30 yard sprint or anything like that. You know, we were doing timing gates, we would do body composition, we do not as much, um, not as much force plate stuff at the time, but we still uh, were doing vertical jump testing, whether it was on a jump mat, uh, drop jump testing, that type of thing. So it was interesting to see kind of the performance side as well as the assessment side when it came to developing the athletes and kind of figuring out where they were. Um, so clearly from that standpoint, I thought the curriculum did a really good job and then um, the opposite side, or not the opposite side, but the coaching side of things, when you were able to be on the floor with the strength coach who was there, you'd kind of see how they would operate. So you're kind of forming your coaching philosophy on the fly um, with the stuff you're getting in the classroom, but also the experiences you had in the weight room. We had uh, Dr. Paul Comfort on the podcast, and uh, we also had Trent Lawton out of Rowing New Zealand. And, you know, I'm wondering is, is there a, an emerging trend for dual coach researcher roles in the field? Um, the, is that something you have seen? 
um, or do you see this as kind of a just a logical extension of the strength and conditioning curriculum and quality coaches just pursuing that terminal degree? I mean, I can just say yes uh, to to everything just because, you know, that that's kind of the, the role that I have now um, doing research and coaching at the same time. But the program that I came out of at East Tennessee State, as I mentioned, is that is the curriculum is you are working on your doctoral dissertation while serving as a full-time strength and conditioning coach. So in that regard, you are expected to do both. And I know uh, Dr. Stone will say is that, you know, a good, uh, a good coach is a good sports scientist and vice versa, assuming that you have the background that you need to have. Uh, at the same time, um, is there more people that are going that route? I think uh, there are more people going that route, primarily because I think everyone's starting to realize that how important it is to be well-read within the literature uh, to be able to implement the strategies um, that you're researching at the same time. For you know, to use Paul or myself as an example, you know, if we're doing any coaching, we are um, we're doing we're implementing weightlifting derivatives, and because we're doing that research, we're you know, we know what we found, but now we're going to go implement it with our teams immediately. And in the role that I am as an educator, I can share that information with our graduate students as well. And they, our graduate students here also serve in a role where they are working as coaches, but they're also getting exposed to the research side as well. So I personally think it's more beneficial to um, to be in both fields or at least be well-read in the literature um, versus just, you know, shunning one side or the other side, because personally, I, I, there's certainly people out there that they're really good coaches. They may not be strong researchers, but on the opposite side, there's probably, um, really good researchers who, you know, shouldn't be in the weight room at all. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, Think about some of the advice that I hear in the field from coaches giving advice to young uh, aspiring coaches. And one of the themes across the board is go get that master's degree. It's important to get that master's degree if you want to be a head strength and conditioning coach. Um, and one of the when you when you get that graduate level education, probably the the key takeaway uh, is that you're exposed to more research methodology, statistics, a little higher analytical um, outlook on the field. Um, and then the other layer of that is that all coaches, if we go into the essentials text, that needs analysis, the testing and evaluation component is always there. So uh, it's something that being connected with the research process, um, whether it be being that researcher yourself or networking that out and connecting with researchers in the field, there's, there's a huge value to that. Um, is that something that you have uh, done in your time at ETSU or at Carroll, worked with local uh, programs, other coaches, um, in, in how do you see that as a need within the field? Uh, I, I, we've been we've been reaching out. So we're in the process of forming a performance institute here at Carroll that will primarily service our athletes, uh, um, you know, our, our athletes here at the university. However, um, as we continue to expand, part of our 
charge within the Institute is coach education. So that is setting up clinics with coaches that is going out to the community coaches, whether it's the, you know, the area high schools or even um, private institutes or, uh, you know, even fellow colleges and sharing the information that we have. Uh, because because we are doing the research with the athletes and we're very hands-on with them, we, we you know we're taking that white box approach so we can figure out what we put in, what we get out, but then what we the knowledge that we gain from that is what we're looking to share. And to be honest, as a researcher, uh, uh, I probably get more research ideas being in the weight room than I do just sitting in the lab. You know, I, I think that's an important piece is that you want to be able to answer the questions that whether it's a strength and conditioning coach or a sport coach actually has, which is truly the quote unquote sports science side rather than just the exercise science side. Um, you want to understand, you know, what makes this athlete successful? How do I train this individual athlete who is, you know, is incredibly elastic compared to the one that grinds through every single rep. So really what it does is it allows us to take the evidence that we gain, or sorry, the knowledge that we gain so we can effectively design programs for every athlete that we come across. So you you mentioned Dr. Stone and um, you and Dr. Stone both spoke at the Advanced Periodization Virtual Clinic uh, just this last week. We actually pre-recorded that event and uh, so uh, while I was experiencing it live, uh, you know, you you did most of your work uh, a, a while back now, but um, you spoke on eccentric training methods, and that's a th- topic that comes up pretty regularly because it connects both to the performance enhancement side of things and also the injury prevention side of things in, in terms of the value of eccentric strength. Um, Speak to your work with eccentric training and um, why that is such an important topic within the field. Yeah, I, I think um, so. Our work with eccentric training, a lot of a lot of it up to this point, is been preliminary, and I say preliminary because we're finishing up other projects right now. But my understanding of the eccentric literature is the fact that we know that these methods are beneficial, but there's more work that needs to be done. So if we're talking about something like um, AEL and weight releasers, if we have 80% on the bar and we're having, you know, how much weight should fall off? Does that matter based on strength levels? So there's a lot of questions that we don't currently have the answer to. Um, The other thing that we have to think about is we can get eccentric benefits from a spectrum of different things, whether we're doing tempo, weight releasers, whether we're doing weightlifting movements, whether we're just landing from different jumps, is there's a spectrum out there. And we need to come to the realization that the way we train eccentrically is going to be specific, not only to the phase of training, but probably the season of training and the strength level of the individual as well. the thing about another thing about eccentric training is the demand that you're placing on the athlete. If we're talking about something like tempo training, we know that it's going to increase time under tension. Time under tension can inevitably benefit things like work capacity. Well, there's a time and a place to develop work capacity. That means that we probably shouldn't be doing tempo training all the time. 
um, you know, novices may benefit more from tempo training because the other thing that it does is it may benefit something like uh, postural strength or positional strength as they're moving through the movement. Um, we showed some force plate data that if you're actually talking about true force output, it's really not changing all that much as you're descending, uh, depending on the speed of the tempo. Uh, at the same time, uh, you think about plyometrics. Plyometrics are a unique tool that every athlete can do, whether it's a novice athlete, an advanced athlete, something as simple as a line hop does give you an eccentric stimulus. It's gonna be low level versus something like a, you know, a 24 inch drop jump completely different. So there's a spectrum that we should be incorporating. It's really just trying to answer the question of if and when uh, with the athletes. So that was your topic at the advanced periodization clinic. And um, that's what I really liked about the event was that every topic got so specific into individual areas that really make up um, this more holistic view of periodization than maybe we have viewed it in the past. Uh, what were some of your takeaways from the event? I know you were really active on social media those days, um, tweeting out quotes from all the presenters. Um, what'd you think? I, I thought it was a, uh, a good mix of different topics, as you, as you mentioned. So you get the, you get the really strong foundational knowledge. And I thought that was day one in a nutshell with, uh, you know, you, you had what I like to call the past president's day was, uh, <laughs> was Doc Stone, you had Greg Hoff and you had uh, Dr. Kramer as well. So it was interesting the way that they approached um, periodization just because it was all kind of unique with Doc Stone. Um, you know, it was kind of interesting because some of it was review from what we from what we covered as students in his classes. But you know, they start to put out higher level ideas that not everyone usually thinks about. So, you know, recent paper that I know Doc was on, um, I can't remember who wrote it, but I think it was uh, Kyle Travis was talking about uh, task specific hypertrophy. And to be honest, we don't, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about that is sometimes when you hear hypertrophy as an, as an undergraduate, you're like, okay, the muscle grows. Well, there's more to it than that. Is it sarcoplasmic? Is it the actual muscle fiber or the myofibular hypertrophy? You know, we know that there's a debate in terms of whether hypertrophy is going to relate to strength or not. And, you know, it, it really depends. I, you know, I hate to use the science answer if it depends, but, you know, depending on what we're talking about, it, it does. Um, but then you had individuals like Cal Dietz. Cal Dietz is putting together some different ideas of how to train your athletes. I really enjoyed um, Matt Wenning's talk as well, is that it's just not things that you maybe necessarily think about or encounter every day. Vernon Griffith, the way that he approaches things is always unique. Um, I, you know, I love following his stuff as well, just because um, he always has a unique take on it. And what I think everyone needs to realize and what I think the conference did was that it put into perspective that there's a big, big gray area when it comes to strength and conditioning. Now, periodization, you could have that debate all day long. And you know, like, like life now, it doesn't matter what you talk about, there's gonna be people on, on both sides that are gonna argue their viewpoint. That's fine. 
But the fact of the matter is, is that we need to realize that strength and conditioning as a whole is great. There's not one way to do things and there's a time and a place essentially for everything. And, and really, I can speak to this from my professional baseball background is we have to be so grounded in the applied to make the program work. And um, one thing I really liked about the event is it really, uh, it, it went from that past president's day and got more and more applied and broadened sort of the scope of what periodization has traditionally been viewed as, um, and, uh, you know, and I'm thinking of the charts and graphs and the linear, linear models. And, you know, one thing Andrea Hootie said, and it really, really hit me was, you know, is periodization dead? And I think she said it in the context of we've now moved, you know, undulating nonlinear fluid periodization. We have to be flexible and make adjustments. How does that fit within an existing model? But I think that also speaks to the professionalism and the development of strength and conditioning professionals. That's something that we have all had to do to continue to expand our mind, continue to expand our thought process. Um, And so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed uh, being part of that event. I I know it was, uh, it was exciting for, for the NSCA to uh, recreate an event that maybe a lot of people don't realize um, first happened back in 2007 connection through UConn. Um, We had a few speakers, Andrea Hootie, um, Greg Hoff and uh, Bill Kramer were all uh, presenters at that first version. And so it's nice to see sort of the evolution of just the way we're looking at a topic like periodization, which like you said, is so gray. Um, Tim, I'd like to ask you about some of your, um, some, other work, and I know you're presenting on this topic at the upcoming coaches conference on weightlifting derivatives. Um, this is something that when I think of the Olympic lifting integration within strength and conditioning, um, you know, I, I go back to college football and it wasn't the pressing snatch balance in the USAW language that we learned it by. We learned it through this more traditional college language, language, the power shrugs and the high pulls. And, the, um, and so when I read your research, it kind of brings me back to that collegiate model of Olympic lifting in a way um, that we, they really came about just in the spirit of being more applied and being sports specific. Um, talk about your work with weightlifting derivatives and just sort of how this uh, body of work has, has progressed and what you're going to talk about at coaches. Um, the project uh, kind of, that kind of started this for me was actually during my master's thesis at UW lacrosse and which was kind of interesting in the, in the start of it, because that wasn't the original project that I was planning on doing. Um, so this, the question really was working with uh, Dr. Glenn Wright was if you remove the catch phase, does that make a difference when it comes to force, velocity, power output, you know, at, at, the, at the basic level? And so what we ended up, um, what we ended up looking at was the differences between a hang power clean, a jump shrug, 
and a hang high pull. So every single movement was performed from the exact same position with the same type of counter movement. Starting at the power position, down to the knee counter movement, transition back, and then you're moving, you know, you're performing the second pull, but you're performing it slightly differently. With the jump shrug, we jumped as high as possible as the bar was coming back up. High pull, we elevated to chest height and a hang power clean. You know, we pulled it, dropped under the bar and caught it. And we did this across a spectrum of loads. It was 30, 45, 65, and 80% of the hang power clean 1RM. So what we ended up finding with that was that the uh, both of the pulling derivatives ended up uh, putting out a greater amount of power output, a greater velocity, and with the jump shrug, it ended up being a higher force output as well. And this was unique across the loading spectrum where the greatest differences were at the lightest loads. Now, when you're talking about doing a hang power clean at 30 and 45%, it's really difficult to get max effort out of uh, out of an individual because if they give max effort, you know, the bar is going to loop way above their head. It's going to come crash, you know, crashing down on them when they rack it. So what was interesting is that the differences uh, actually got smaller as the load got heavier, meaning, you know, if you go look at the literature, you're going to find, you know, optimal power output with something like a hang power clean between 60 and 80%, depending on who you read. But what was really interesting is that how high the power outputs were for individuals at really light loads for something like a jump shrug and a hang high pull. Jump shrug maximized power output at 30% of 1RM. The hang high pull maxed power output at 45% 1RM in this study. And this kind of led us to dig into this a little bit farther is each exercise individually can is going to be implemented a certain way. We view something like a jump shrug as more of a velocity dominant exercise. So it's on one end of that force velocity spectrum. You can still get really high power outputs if you do heavier loads, but your technique may start to fall off a little bit because you have that hip hinge movement. It's difficult to jump with heavier loads. Just look at something like a, a jump squat or even a hex bar jump. Um, same thing with a high pull is that we ended up finding that despite the high power outputs with you know light to moderate loads, it ended up being almost essentially the same when we got to about 80%, just because that's the point that the bar for a something like a high pull is not going to go as high. It's going to go to that minimal height that you need to drop under the bar to catch it. So it's difficult to produce more power output that way. So we looked at this several different ways. You know, we looked at it at an acute standpoint, where it's just instantaneous variables, and then we um, we ended up doing time normalized uh, over the course of the entire movement. And what we ended up finding with that, and that was work with Chris Soul, was the movements are essentially the same through eighty to eighty-five percent of the movement, but the last, you know, fifteen to twenty percent was that second pull, and because you're being fully ballistic with something like a jump shrug, that's going to maximize or really push that force output and push that power output that much higher um, versus the other exercise, the high pull, you don't leave the ground, but you're maximizing that pull. 
um, the uh, hang power clean, you're not being ballistic. Instead of jumping off the ground up, you're moving your feet to the side. So I would, it, it is ballistic, yes, because you kind of come off the ground, but it's almost semi-ballistic because you're not maximizing effort to jump as high as possible. So this kind of coincided uh, right around the same timeline as Paul Comfort was doing some of his work on the mid-thigh pull uh, compared to a mid-thigh power clean, hang power clean. And he was showing similar results when using a single load. So now working with Paul, it was actually at an NSCA conference that uh, I actually had my one of my posters next to his student, John McMahon. And so we started talking. I saw Paul's name was on the poster and then I got to meet Paul. And then from there it was, you know, let's collaborate. So through, thankfully, again, an NSCA grant, we were able to um, we were able to do an international collaboration and actually do a training study to see, OK, we found these acute differences. Does it matter if you do these longitudinally? So the first study with the NSCA grant was an eight-week study in season with a, a variety of athletes over in the UK. And what we ended up finding, there's two groups. One group trained with catching variations and the other group trained with pulling variations that were biomechanically similar. So if, a, if one group did a power clean from the floor, the other group did a pull from the floor, but they did them with the exact same loads. And what came out of that study is that regardless of the variable, whether it was 1RM power clean, whether it was you know isometric mid-thigh pull peak force or rapid force production, counter movement jump, squat jump, there was no difference between either group and also no practical difference if you're talking about you know, effect sizes. So that being said, the conclusion of that of that study was you can train with either. It really doesn't matter which one you train with. So we took that a step farther with doing a 10-week training study here at Carroll. And we just finished that up within the last, within the last year. It took three years, but, <laughs> but we got it done. Um, so what we did is we did something similar to Paul is we had a, we had a catch group. We had a pull group that used the exact same loads, biomechanically similar movements. But what we also did is the unique thing about the pulls is that you, because you're not catching it, you can use loads over a hundred percent of one RM and they are going to be less taxing, um, because you're not catching it every single time in that rack position, having to lower it down and then do another repetition. So we were able to use a force overload during a strength endurance phase, as well as a strength phase to really emphasize the force end of that force velocity curve. You know, we're using loads uh, with some exercises. We use 135% of their power clean one RM with a mid thigh pull. But then when we transitioned into kind of our speed strength phase here at the end, we started to shift to more velocity dominant exercises with the jump shrug and a high pull. But at that point, we're using loads as low as um, 20 or 30% of 1RM to maximize that velocity piece. And what we ended up finding was across the board with a 1RM hang power claim, sprint speeds at 10, 20, and 30 meters, 505 change of direction, isometric mid-thigh pull peak force. Every single variable we looked at favored 
this overload group that was loaded specific to each, uh, each phase. So the take home was if you're going to use pulling derivatives, load them specific to each phase. Now, this, the group that kind of followed them was the pull group uh, with certain variables. They weren't different from the, from the catch group, but they did also show um, better rapid force production compared to uh, the catch group. And part of the reason why is, is that if you think about a pull like a mid-thigh pull, you can use loads up to about 140% of 1RM. At least that's what's in the literature. You could probably go heavier than that. But you're using submaximal loads at that point because your theoretical 1RM is much, much higher than what your power clean is. So you're really emphasizing velocity and rapid force production at that point. So altogether, um, where we are right now is um, we know poles are beneficial. We have a general idea of kind of how we can implement them um, with the loads, but now the question is that we're trying to answer now, and this is an ongoing project, is we know that you can implement catches or pulls. You know, just make sure that whatever stimulus you're giving the athlete is going to, um, I should say catches, pulls, or a combination of both. It doesn't have to be one or the other, just to clarify. Um, Whatever you're going to implement, we just need to make sure that we are providing the stimulus that is specific to each phase. What is going to maximize the benefit that we're trying to get? So you may maximize force output or strength with pulling derivatives because you can use heavier loads. Um, maybe you want a moderate loaded pull in there to maximize rate of force development. You can certainly do that too. Um, but where I was going with this is that if someone is going to implement uh, pulling derivatives only, you can do that. The hard part though, is that you are, all the research out there has been based on the percentage of one RM of a catching derivative. So what we're trying to find is different ways to implement pulling derivatives without having to do a one RM catch. So that's kind of our venture right now. And um, we have about seven or eight participants that have finished the study. So we're in the process of starting to analyze that. And just to foreshadow, we plan on presenting some of that at the um, national clinic, hopefully, and as well as our state clinic in April. I think that as a field, we've gotten a lot better at specific applications of the force velocity curve in your research, uh, along with a lot of other areas, the velocity-based training and uh, just the amount of force plate research that's coming out um, all really speaks to that. But one thing I think of is that, you know, not all body types do well with Olympic lifts. It's sometimes, um, we don't talk about this a lot, but the technical load of learning a movement and the strain that adds to a team program of, you know, is it an uphill battle to teach teach a movement that maybe isn't ideal for that athlete. And I think one of the real positives is that this gives us more options. The, the main takeaway that I would like coaches and other researchers to get from, from our work is we're not trying to take away lifts from anybody. You know, we, we're not saying, oh, just because you can get, you know, better velocity, better power output at this specific load, 
we're not saying don't ever do catching and none of our research says don't ever catch um you know not to self promote but i put together an article in the nsca coach called the gray area um and referring to implementing weightlifting derivatives and the idea here is that depending on what we're trying to build at the time you can use the catch you can use a pull it really doesn't matter based on paul's work and, and our work in terms of the training studies using the same loads with derivatives, you can end up with the exact same stimulus. So we're not trying to create a, you know, this side versus the other side. We're fully, you know, we fully agree with the fact that you can implement both catching and pulling effectively, as long as it's implemented specific to what you're trying to build at the time. So we're trying to expand the coaching toolbox by adding more options, as you mentioned, versus taking things away. I really, I really like that. And, um, like I mentioned it, it is, um, a reemerging area of the field. And I wanted to give you a chance, um, because you're dialed into both the practitioner side of things and the research side of things, you know, what do you see coming in terms of emerging topics, um, or valuable topics that, um, you see taking the field forward in the next few years? Uh, I know that we were talking about eccentric training earlier. I, I would like to think that we're going to get a better grasp on that than what we currently have. Um, I think we, like, as we mentioned, we have a general idea of what works. We just need to do a better job of figuring out when and how to implement those types of methods, because like anything in strength and conditioning, everything works until it doesn't. Um, so it's really just finding you know, again, who can benefit from these? When can they benefit from them? Is it necessary to implement them? How often should we be implementing them? You know, does, uh, does certain, do certain strength levels dictate that we should be including more of these, less of these? Uh, I, I consider certain methods of eccentric training as kind of our advanced training methods where you may be able to use them as kind of a novel training stimulus with individuals who have gotten, relatively speaking, stronger, you know, they, they've developed that strength reserve. Um, so kind of a segue into another thing that I think is going to be um, continuing on and expanding more is individualized programming. You know, we generally speaking, I, I like to think that we do a, a decent job at individualizing training. However, I think, uh, especially with COVID now, uh, we've kind of fallen back to, hey, I, this is what I want everyone, everybody to do to make sure we develop this baseline strength, et cetera. Um, but some of the work that's been done on individual kind of force velocity profiles, I think more of that's going to be developed, um, you know, figuring out how different types of methods of training are going to shift that curve one side to the other. Uh, I think... It's, it's a very interesting topic. I think we're still scratching the surface of it. There's a lot more work to still be done on VBT, in my opinion. Uh, I, you know, we're actually using velocity-based monitors doing the project that we are with, uh, with weightlifting derivatives right now. And I think developing into, you know, individual exercise velocity bands is gonna be uh, something that's gonna be unique you know, placing everything kind of on a spectrum 
is is going to be uh, you know something that's going to continue, and I think it's going to open up the eyes of coaches to you know this smattering of exercises that we have available to us. Um, it, and again, it all comes down to the to, the tools, equipment, um, and athletes that we have because I I you know I would. I can't say I've been in this debate, but, you know, people really like hex bar jump squats. That's great. I, you know, hex bar jump squats, a great exercise, but I remember it was at an NSCA clinic. Someone asked me, have you compared that with a jump shrug? We have now. Um, one exercise is going to be more of a strength, um, you know, a force dominant exercise versus, versus a velocity dominant. I think hopefully the goal of some of my research is to, again, provide coaches with more options. It's just so we don't get so stuck in our silos of these are the exercises I have. This is what I'm always going to program and no one's going to tell me otherwise. That's why I think of the time that we stop learning is the time we stop growing as coaches. And again, I'm not calling anybody out at all um, because we all kind of have our bread and butter exercises. There's no doubt about that. But just knowing what else is out there is going to help us grow as professionals. That That's a great segue to talk about the NSCA Sports Science and Performance Technology Special Interest Group. Uh, Tim, you're the chair of that special interest group. Um, and um, it is connected with the new certification program that's coming out by the NSCA in 2021, um, the Essentials of Sports Science textbook um, will launch uh, at the end of February 2021. So there's a lot of excitement building around that program. And this, the special interest group has been a great way to communicate um, what's coming. Uh, in terms of that program. Um, being the chair of that program, talk about what's going on, some of the conversations, and just uh, share that with our listeners um, so that they know where to go. Yeah, so the Facebook page that we have uh, has been fairly active, sometimes more than others, no doubt about that, because everyone has everyone's busy. Um, whether it's, you know, our Zoom meetings or Skype meetings, whatever, we're, we're always seem to be in front of a computer screen, but it'd be, you know, hop on the, hop on the page. I think it's a unique place to, uh, to share some information. So we've, we've seen anything from sports science clinics in terms of advertisements. We've seen, you know, I, I occasionally will put in there a, a topic of conversation, you know, how are people dealing with COVID? What types of technologies do you find beneficial during these times when you don't get to be face-to-face -face with your athletes all the time? Um, you know, are there different testing methods that you're going to be using with your athletes given our current restrictions? You know, even something as simple as, okay, hey, we heard about this new product. Has anyone else tried it? So I think clearly from the technology side, there's, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of conversation. At the same time, I think the conversation of really getting down to what is sports science, you know, who who functions as a sports scientist, and I think part of our group is very unique because we have a people from a variety of backgrounds that can actually work in kind of a sports science role. And kind of as we talked about, and with the the uh, virtual ex, uh, exhibition hall, as we kind of talked about. 
is someone like a strength and conditioning coach can certainly work as a sports scientist. You also have people who are engineers. You have people who are, you know, in data analytics. So a variety of people can function as sports scientists. And I think our SIG is going to continue to grow and uh, be able to share more information about that. Yeah. It, one of the take-homes is that there are, there are different types of sports scientists that exist and that's the current professional landscape and just being a broad focus group. Um, we do have a, a broad audience represented um, within, within that group. Um, and, but I will say that it truly is a place for, if you're involved in the NSCA community, if you're a strength and conditioning coach, it's a great place to learn what's what's coming in terms of the what we've talked about the force velocity curve the technology a lot of those tech driven topics um the re the research has been around on some of these topic areas for a number of years but technology has really put some of these discussions back onto the forefront because it's much more accessible to us and that is one of the themes that i see in the conversation and it's uh and I will just do a little plug for the special interest group program. This is an underutilized resource in the NSCA community that is incredibly valuable. Um, it is, other than going to a live event, which we haven't had a lot of this year, it is the best way to stay connected with other professionals in the field. It's just an active, ongoing conversation in a topic area that you're interested in. And we we have over 20 special interest groups. Um, we're adding them all the time. Um, and there's a pathway. If there's another topic that you would like to start a special interest group, that is something that uh, is available to you as well. Um, Tim, one thing I want to ask you, and you know, you're such an active volunteer within the NSCA community, um, the state provincial directors program, the special interest groups. Speak to the value of being a volunteer with the NSCA, what that's done for you. And um, I know you touched on that a little bit, but um, talk a little bit about the pathway of just getting involved because we do get a lot of questions of how do I, you know, who do I reach out to or where, where do I find this information? Um, can you share that with us? Yeah, so I, I, the NSCA has been an invaluable resource for me just growing as a professional. You know, I, I started off, um, you know, I didn't know much about the NSCA when I was in undergrad and kind of knew what it was a little bit. But to be honest, uh, you know, my that was my first organization that I, you know, became a member of. You know, once we find out that we kind of have a passion for strength and conditioning, you know, you get access to all the resources, whether it's the journals, whether it's the, um, you know, the, the access to the clinic materials, uh, but it starts to open up other opportunities. But the main thing for me is the people, because I've had, I've been fortunate enough to meet so many, uh, so many people, whether it was just from, you know, a state clinic where I wouldn't have met them previously, you know, I had the experience when I was younger to, uh, you know, when 2010, I was a senior in undergrad, and I uh, was able to present at a Wisconsin State Clinic, very first presentation I ever did. And what that kind of grew into was meeting people like Bill Kramer. Bill Kramer happened to be the 
keynote speaker at that clinic, but also meeting people locally like Brian Edelbeck, Jason Rowe, and both of those individuals, you know, served as state directors for um, for our state clinics here in Wisconsin. And now being in that role currently is that you start to develop the relationships to figure out who can, you know, who can speak on this topic, who can I have this conversation with, but, um, you know, going to state clinics, regional clinics, national clinics, the national clinic I, was the very first one I went to was 2012 in Providence. And um, the unique thing about that to me was I had no idea what a national clinic was going to be like. You know, I had a poster to present. I was very, you know, I, I didn't know a lot of people. I knew who I, you know, I knew my roommate at the time who, um, who happened to be Jason Rowe, you know, I knew a couple of people that were going to be there, but beyond that, take all opportunities that are presented to you. And what I mean by that is you can't be afraid to go up and say hello to some of these, um, who we consider kind of the big wigs. You know, I remember the very first time I met at, at NSCA in person, Paul Comfort, Andy Fry, uh, Sophia Nymphius, you know, talking with, um, Dr. McStone and his wife, Meg, yeah, Greg Hoff, Duncan French. I mean, all of these people were all, all people I had met for the very first time at MDA. And, you know, everyone's, everyone knows who these people are. And the best part of all of that is they, the more you get to know them, they will take the opportunity to introduce you around and you get to know other people. I found myself at a table having sushi didn't think didn't think it was going to happen Orlando 2015 I think it was um sitting at a table with Mike Stone Meg Stone Jeff McBride Travis Triplett Greg Hoff Aaron Hoff and you know sitting at a sitting at a table with those people you start to realize how connected that group is and how many I think it was a while back when Greg Hoff was president, not a while back, but a couple, several years ago, um, where he asked, how many of you were taught by Mike Stone? How many of you were taught by Bill Hamer? And essentially the entire room was standing up. So getting to know these people and their networks and getting involved in those networks is, is such a rewarding experience because once you know one person, you know another 20 people. And then you know, the benefits of that is start to seek you out for whether it's speaking engagements, whether it is getting involved in, you know, a, this SIG, you know, Eric, you, you were that reached out to me to have kind of a conversation first about this SIG getting together and kind of the sports science certification. And I'm incredibly thankful for that. But my advice to people wanting to get involved with the NSCA is seize all opportunities because there's plenty out there that are available. You know, I tried to get on the, the research committee for four years and four or five years, and this was finally the year. So um, to be able to serve in that capacity now. And what, what we all try to do is we try to pay it forward, you know, getting, uh, getting no people like Jay and Nick Radimus as well is all these people, they're all there to help you succeed. And no one uh, that I have met really seems to be, you know, overly selfish. Uh, you know, we all have our things to do. So if someone's fully ingrained in their work on their computer, you know, you don't have to go up and kind of bug them. But, you know, maybe 
offer to buy, if you're really interested in someone's work, buy them a coffee. They'll sit down and talk to you for, you know, 20, 30 minutes, but it's making those connections and then, you know, expanding on those connections. I will say just purely from a social media standpoint, I have met more people over Twitter and Instagram. Um, but then meeting them in person is just that much more rewarding is you have the conversation. Oh yeah, I'm going to be at this clinic. I'll catch up with you later. And that's kind of been, you know, how I got to know people like Roger Lloyd and John McMahon. So, um, you know, I hate to, I hate to name drop and everything, but the, you know, this is my experience and the, you know, these are all people that I've been fortunate enough to, um, to get to know and, you know, continue to work with. Social media is definitely a, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the new icebreaker in a way. And one thing, uh, even just now, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) even just this podcast going uh, virtual uh, for the first time this year, it allowed us to have international guests uh, that weren't at our live event, live events. So um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting when we talk about the performance technology within the special interest group um, and, you know, it all kind of comes back to communication tools. And that's truly what, whether it's performance technology or how we're connecting with our athletes, um, verbally sending them programs that, you know, uh, technology is largely based on the need, uh, for communication. And one thing I, that really comes to mind is, uh, from my experience and what you just said is NSCA events are, largely about that connection element. And I think that is something that in our conversations about future events, uh, we all see the value of the research and the, in the quality education content. And that's what we go there for. But when you get there, there's just, there's such a large group of like-minded individuals that just have so many experiences to share. And, uh, so, so with that, I, I truly miss the live events and I'm kind of digging myself into that rabbit hole a little bit of thinking, man, when are we going to get back to normal? But even if um, this time lasts for a while, I have uh, really enjoyed just being able to connect virtually with people as well. And I think it um, challenges us to be a little bit more um, deliberate and tactful with the way we communicate and getting face-to-face interaction, even if that is over a screen and just how valuable that has been um, through 2020. I will tell people as well with, you know, with, with national clinics, you know, having been to a handful of them, the very first one I went to, my schedule was booked 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 10 a.m. I'm going to every single talk But what you're going to find the more that you end up going to those is that you're going to go to the talks that you're really interested in. It's not to say that you don't have some interest in others, but take the time to make the connections outside of those talks, because that's what's going to be, you know, sometimes you end up learning more outside of the talks. Don't get me wrong. You learn a lot inside the talks too, but you're going to learn a lot just having conversations with these individuals who are doing the research, who are coaching these, these athletes and have good ideas. You know, just don't, just don't turn down those opportunities. Well, and there's a lot of follow-up too on those interactions. And that's, that's one of the huge takeaways is, uh, 
you, you're going to stay in touch with those, with, with those coaches, researchers, individuals, and, and they're going to stay in touch with you. And it, it really just builds a stronger strength and conditioning community. So, um, Tim, I, I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. Uh, learned a lot about kind of your research focus and some of the upcoming talks you had. Um, really excited um, that you were a part of the advanced periodization uh, clinic we just had. Truly a, a huge success for the NSCA and everybody who attended. Um, f- almost 1,500 attendees at that event, which which is just a huge accomplishment for um considering the NSCA had never really done a lot of virtual events before the last couple of years. So really, really exciting on our end. And I know um, the coaches that have uh, shared with us their feedback, it's been very positive. So I'm excited that that's the direction we're headed with things. Very thankful for your contributions as a volunteer, as a member, as a coach, as a researcher. Um, And I just give you the opportunity. How can our listeners get in contact with you? Yeah, social media, um, on Twitter, probably more than anything, uh, Twitter and Instagram handle is Dr. T. Sukumel. And then on my Twitter, I also have a, a link to my ResearchGate page. And the ResearchGate has, uh, generally speaking, full texts of um, all, of our, all of our research that's out there. Um, again, if, if someone reaches out to me, uh, I try to get back to you. Um, and you know, generally speaking, I get back to, back to everybody. So, um, but yeah, Dr. T. Sukumel for, uh, Twitter and Instagram generally. Dr. Tim Sukumel, assistant professor, Carroll university. Um, he's the Wisconsin state director for the NSCA and the chair of the NSCA sports science and performance technology special interest group. Tim, thanks for being on. And uh, we'd also like to thank Soranex Exercise Equipment, our sponsor on this podcast. And if you're engaged on social media a lot like me, you'll also need to check out NSCA's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And to all of you listening, we appreciate your support. Again, if you like the podcast, make sure you subscribe wherever you download your podcast from, write us a review, and keep listening in. Thank you, and I look forward to talking with you all soon. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.